Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 17, 2015. This is episode 1696 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today. Um, if you're looking to expand your capabilities to produce food, um, from a, an agricultural standpoint, from a standpoint of actually turning a profit, this show is going to be right up your alley. If not, maybe not so much, but I still think we can learn a lot about business and understanding what opportunities are available out there through this show, even if you're not into farming. But this is going to focus on actually getting grants from the NRCS to actually help pay for part of or even all of the installation of a high tunnel on property that you either own or manage. It's really interesting. It is from a, a listener that's been with us for a very long time named Rob Kaiser, and uh, he just went through this process. So I wouldn't say he's an expert at it, but he knows a hell of a lot more than I do because I've never done it, and he has, and it was about a one-year-long process. And uh, he's got a great story to go along with it and a work ethic that uh, I just really admire. This is a guy... Still working full-time, busting his butt farming and, and developing a farm on leased land he's leasing from his parents. Uh, in his 40s, so not some young spring chicken doing it either. And I know how the time starts to wear on you as you get into your mid-40s. Anyway, before I bring Rob on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us that think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what, just, just stick with us. 
And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I called them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode from... Alex shrugged at TSP Wiki, the year 1696, because it's episode 1696. I have the Great Recoinage is not that great. I have Finland Famine, and I have the Old Farm Highway becomes Connecticut Route 108. I just want to really kind of mention real quick on that, because it's kind of cool. Route 108 is considered the third oldest highway in Connecticut. The others are Mohegan Road, 1670, which is Route 32, and Boston Post Road, uh, 1673 was when that was established in U.S. 1. So those are, that's a, a pretty historical thing there for you guys in New England. And you got a lot of that up there because, well, a lot of everything here started there. Anyway, I'm going to read Finland Famine because I think it has a lot to tell us about thinking that we know something when we don't. Uh, Estonia and Finland are hit hard by famine. Almost a third of Finland's population has died and possibly a fifth of Estonia. The Little Ice Age is the cause of such variability, and in weather that some years produce bumper crops and other years cannot be cannot produce enough seed for the next planting season. My take by Alex Shrugged. There was a lot of irrigation going on in Finland at the time. The plows were primitive. They didn't even have wheels on them. And fertilizer for the fields was inadequate because they lacked enough farm animals to produce the manure. When a crop produces less seed than was already planted, there's not enough crop to feed people. And the next crop will be smaller than the previous one. That's a formula for famine. It's also a formula for understanding things and realizing that radical swings in weather are nothing new. And, and, and today, every single radical swing in weather is attributed to what? Global warming. I mean climate change. I mean climate weirdness or whatever. It, this is preposterous. We've gotten into a, a level of ridiculous stupidity with this. And and I say that as someone that doesn't buy into CO2 as causing global warming, I mean change, whatever, okay? Even if you do, if you're at all rational, if you're at all logical, if you're using any of the brain cells given to you by your creation, you have to admit this kind of stupidity has just gone too far. That every I've mean, people to there's flowers on fruit trees late in the year. That's from global warming. Like that's never happened before. What we had was a real dip in temperatures, a cool point, and then we have a very mild late fall. 
It's happened before. It'll happen again. Get used to it. It's the way things are. There's no guarantees in farming. And I think this, this fits well in with what we're talking about today. One thing they didn't have in Finland were technologies not only like even understanding organic fertilizers and stuff to the level we do today, but they didn't have things like high tunnels. And we can actually use technology today to extend or level out food production and make sure that we can feed people year-round. I think that's an awesome thing. So even if you're not into it for yourself, you may want to know about this because somebody somewhere is growing your food. And weather will radically change in the future. It has in the past. And we study the past because it will repeat itself. My take by Jack Spirico. On that note, I have a great video um, from Stefan Molyneux, who I like in some ways a lot, in some other ways not as much. But I really do like him overall uh, with some cautions that I, I think there's almost like a cult-like nature to some of his stuff from what I've been told. And if I'm wrong, then the people that told me are wrong. Okay? But his videos in general are pretty awesome. I'm going to put out a video in the show notes today where he explains this climate change stuff from a standpoint of how much credit we give to scientists and how we see them as kind of independent and separate and, and why it's all nonsense. No matter what you think about global warming, I'd suggest you watch it. It's about 18 minutes long, and it might change how you look at the political components of it. I'm just saying. With that, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to help support this show, you can do so. And you can do that by joining the Member Support Brigade. It's $50 a year. Comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. Gives you discounts on things you're buying anyway. Uh, several of the, several of the discount, uh, memberships actually pay for the membership itself, such as the Safe Castle discount membership. That's a lifetime program. That's 49 bucks. So your first year is a dollar. Um, if you if you use herbals, Western Botanicals is the best source I know of for herbals. That's why they're a long-term sponsor here. And, uh, they have a premium membership program. It's 50 bucks. Okay. Uh, and so you get it for free for the first year and you can renew at half price after that. So that pays for your first year. So those two benefits right there alone are worth 99 bucks. So, I mean, it is a program that pays for itself. So think about that if you want to support the show, that over the year you will get more than your money back if you, you know, are buying things from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. International listeners, I can't do as much for you. There are $185 worth of free ebooks sitting there. And there are some products that you can buy internationally, and there are some things that are soft products as well. So, Anyway, with that knocked out, um, before I bring Rob on, I want to uh, share with you one of my many hate mails. I get, like, oh, I don't know, a couple dozen of these a week. And I don't talk about them much, but I think it's good for you guys to know like the crap I deal with and, and sometimes how, how stupid the assertions in, in the hate mails are. So I got an email from a guy we'll just call uh, Joe. And Joe says, hey, stupid. That's how he, that's how he opens up the, uh, the thing. I guess you didn't understand economics as well as you thought you did. The Fed just raised the rates. The stock market is surging. And you and Grand Poo Bob Pugliano have probably cost all of your listeners a great deal of money by telling them to not be in stocks this year. They're going to miss out on this massive end-of-year rally Good job, dumbass, Joe. Really, Joe? Okay, so <laughs> let's put a little context in it. So about May, June, John Pugliano and I 
uh, through various different discussions, started saying there is absolutely no upside in this market for 2015. And uh, the, it really it was a time to either be cherry-picking individual stocks and know exactly what you're doing, be in other forms of investment, or rest in cash funds or cash equivalents, because it wasn't so much that you were going to lose a lot of money but that there was no real upside, and you could lose a lot of money. We didn't really know, but just, just that this market was, you know, at the best case scenario, you might make three points on your money, four points on your money by the end of the year. You'd already had a pretty good run for several years. Get out of the way. Then in August, the, the, about mid-August, uh, the market was sitting around, let me just look at the chart here so I, I don't, Get this wrong. Uh, the high point uh, in in the backside of August was seventeen five forty five, okay, and uh, right about that point, boom, the market went down and and dropped hundreds and hundreds of points. And my advice then was, you're probably going to see some recovery, and when you when you see that recovery, kind of get back to where you were before this. There's still no upside in the market. Get out of the market. So moving on into like the end of October. You know, we're getting back up into the uh, 17.6, which is, you know, a little bit better than August, and then up into about 17.9. Uh, and, you know, anywhere in there was plenty of recovery to once again say, I've had enough of this. We had a dip in November that dropped down around 17.2, and then it came back up into the range of about 17.8-ish. And a little more on some good days. So there was all kinds of opportunities for people that, that, that got the hit to get that recovery and get out of the way and not take the risk through the rest of the year, just like we said. Then, um, recently, the market dipped down about 17.2 again. The Fed announced its rates. The market surged more than 200 points in one day and got up to a whopping high yesterday of 17.749. In June, when John and I were telling you there was no upside to the market, the lowest day of the market was 17,764. In July, when we were also telling you that there was no upside to the market, the worst day you could have sold on, you would have sold for 17,440. 17,440 on the worst day. Best day, best week. In July, to have gotten out, you could have sold uh, with the Dow sitting at around 18,000. Very best day, around 18,1. Okay? Market today, down 178 of those whopping 220-odd points put on yesterday. Pr- current price of the market, 17,570. Kind of like we knew we were talking about. Not really getting hurt as long as there's not some, you know, last bit of December mutilation or something like that. But basically, 17.5. No real upside <laughs> to the market for 2015. Is this because John Pugli and Otto and I are complete geniuses? No. It's because we can read the writing on the wall. The indicators right now that there's no major upside to the market. Are, are many. They're many. When will we have again a, another true potential for upside or serious downside? I don't know, but I'm really nervous about the first quarter. And I'm really nervous about like, 
at the end of the first quarter when the numbers from the last quarter come out and nobody's happy about them because I don't think they're going to be. By the way, we have commodities dying. That is forcing money into the stock market, yet we do have a cap on the market. You know, with commodities dropping the way they are, you should see the market kind of picking up in a normal pattern, but they, they can't because of why commodities are dropping. Commodities are dropping because it's a global slowdown on actually using those commodities. We're in kind of a, a stagflation mode, and we'll, when we come out of the end of it, we're either going to really take a horrible dip down or a, 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 you know, a short-term bounce up. I don't know which one's going to be yet. I'm still watching for further indicators. My gut is toward the downside. My gut is toward a global recession. Uh, maybe not as deep as 2008 because the, the reasons are different. They're actually more chronic and more long-term, but they're less acute, right? So it's it, it's more like uh, a long-term cancer diagnosis than a short-term. The patient might die tomorrow, but if we can get him through it, maybe he'll live, which is what 2008 ended up being like, okay? So what do I say to do? Protect your money. Protect your money. Don't take risks you don't understand always, but especially right now. There's, there's no real upside to this market. So, Joe, um, perhaps... Before you insult people, you might actually do a little bit of math first, especially when the math is so in favor of the person that you're insulting. I don't know, guys. Um, we just call it like we see it. We don't give actual financial advice. Um, we do say to run things by whoever you use for your financial management or to make your own decisions in informed ways. But we tell you what we're doing, and we tell you why we're doing those things. And in this case, it's because we're looking at a situation that just has no oomph to it. There's just nothing forcing the market forward, either up or down. We're in this flat plane right now. So with that in mind, let's think about what caused the market to go up with an interest uh, rate increase. So let's think about what really happened. The Federal Reserve took their interest rate from almost nothing, to slightly more than almost nothing. So it wasn't even anything. It was a symbolic thing. It was the Fed saying, we don't need to keep these rates quite this low to keep the patient alive anymore. Yay! And all this was is a bunch of buying on the uptick and a bunch of preemptive buying by those who knew the announcement was coming. And this drop of, of, of almost equivalent amount the next day is all of the traders taking their profits made in the stupidity bounce. That, that's all that was. As you increase interest rates, you actually use that to slow down an economy that's burning too hot. That's the tool. That's the Keynesian tool. By the way, did you like the Keynesian rap yesterday, right? Uh, <laughs> but that's the Keynesian tool. Is that as the market starts to weaken, we drop interest rates and increase spending and borrowing, etc. And that as the market starts to heat up and we go into something where we get too hot of a market, because it can grow too fast, we can have hyperinflation, etc. We, we control that by jacking interest rates up. So there's an old saying in, in, in basic stock management that when interest rates are low, stocks will grow. When interest rates are high, stocks will die. So in this case, you actually have stocks coming up as interest rates come up only because they're so artificially low to begin with. So it's really a non-event that made for an interesting talking point for a day on things like C-SPAN or whatever. All right, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, which is how you can actually save some money or actually even make some money or invest in infrastructure to do so with high tunnels and other grants from NRCS. 
Uh, and to talk about that, I'm bringing on Rob Kaiser. With that, hey, Rob, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, hey, Jack, thanks for, uh, thanks for bringing me on. It's uh, good to be on your show. Well, hey, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Um, I, I've heard a lot about this uh, NRCS High Tunnel Grant, and seems like a good thing, but like many things involving government, I don't really understand how it works, and maybe it's designed that way. And I want to talk about that, but I'd, I'd like to start out with, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Tell them a little bit about who you are and kind of this new venture that you're on right now that led you to even, you know, want a high tunnel. Sure. Well, my name is Rob Kaiser. I, I live in Northeast Ohio, and the the, the long and short of it is I have I've spent the bulk of my adult life in various facets of the green industry, and ultimately the the last company I was with got me traveling throughout the country doing project management work, and I and I ultimately landed up landed up in Southern California, and while I was living out there, my parents started doing some market farming uh, on a very, very small scale, and they really couldn't devote a whole lot of time to the land, but they wanted to, they just wanted to, to earn a little bit of side income and, and ultimately retain the uh, CAUV, which uh, that's another uh, tax thing I don't fully understand, but they wanted to retain the uh, that that tax on their land. So they were they got engaged in some farming practices. They we planted some blue. I helped them plant some blueberry bushes and uh, about five years ago, and and they really you know went down the path of making breads, making soaps, making lotions, hand creams, and that was the bulk of things while the market garden was. Uh, not. And over the past five years, I would come home and I would visit while I was on my previous career path. And I saw what they were doing. I started listening to podcasts like yours, podcasts like uh, Permaculture Voices with Diego Footer and, and started really reevaluating what I was doing with my life and where I was going and the path that I was on. I realized I wasn't really happy um, and that I wanted to make a change. So I was talking with my parents and basically decided to move back from Southern California, move back home, and try and help them uh, grow grow a family farm. And 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 in the in the interim, I was also interested in pursuing some of my own ventures. So. Um, it, in the process, uh, I guess to, to kind of wrap that up, we, we wanted to build a family farm, kind of reintroduce the, the family farm as that's something that isn't what it once was. And in the, in, in doing it in a very efficient and effective way, I went ahead and formed a business to lease land from my parents to capitalize on the NRCS program as a beginning farmer. So before we get into what that program is, can you explain to people what makes a high tunnel a high tunnel versus a big greenhouse? Sure. That's pretty, uh, that, that's a, that's a good question and, and something that's, you know, 
gets a lot of shoulder shrugs. Basically, a, a traditional greenhouse, and in, in the way that I see it from you know years in the green industry, greenhouses can be a word used interchangeably with glass house. Uh, it's typically got you know some sort of uh, harder plastic, polycarbonate, or or even glass in the old days walls. Whereas a high tunnel is a I don't, I don't want to say less permanent, but it's, it's a structure that oftentimes has a much thinner translucent plastic material on it that needs to be replaced every, you know, generally speaking, four or five years is what the manufacturers recommend. So it's, it's uh, just not solid walls, but, but more of a thinner plastic. Gotcha. So what exactly is the NRCS Seasonal High Tunnel Program? Okay. So the NRCS is the is an acronym for the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and that is part of the USDA. And for before going any further, um, the agent that I'm working with, and other people have affectionately referred to as the NRCS as the redheaded stepchild of the USDA. Okay. And, and hearing that puts me a little bit at ease, but, um, more on that later. So the NRCS is, is, is an agency or, or a division of the USDA that basically offers technical and financial assistance to farmers and ranchers. And this is all part of the farm bill from a couple of years ago. And, and I, I also want to say that a lot of what I will, or a lot of what I plan on saying is verbatim off of the website. So as not to misinform uh, anybody out there that's listening, I, I don't want to sit here and read a script, but I do want to make sure that what I am saying is accurate. Okay. That's my ability. All right. So, um, You're leasing land, so I guess you don't need to own land then to take advantage of this. No, no, that's that's correct, and that's a big that's a big deal because a lot of people that are like me in mid to late 30s that want to make a change maybe aren't in the position to do take on a bigger project like this because they don't own land. Well. You can do it and not own land because I don't. Yes, it, it it is a little easier because the landowner, they're my parents, I'm related to them, but uh, with a little legwork, you can find landowners that are willing to provide the space requirements that you need to build a structure like this. And yeah, it's difficult to take it with you and 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 move if your lease runs out. So. You know, it's. It, I, I suspect it would generally be easier to work with a landowner if it was a close friend or family member. But ultimately, I, I think all of us know or, or can can find someone that has land that's not utilized and basically work and do what I did, which was structure a lease agreement with the particular landowner to basically. I went through the process. I got the structure built. I did the application. All the funds that are a part of this cost share program 
were given to my business. And then when the contract is complete, I will effectively sell the high tunnel to the landowner or restructure a longer term lease, which is really what I'd like to do, you know, sure. maybe a 10, 20 year lease or something like that. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. And like, so is this land that this, this high tunnels going on zoned as agricultural land? And is that generally a requirement? This land is, and therefore it was, it, it met the requirements that the, that were a part of the NRCS program. Is that a requirement? The honest truth is I don't know. But what I do know is that the experience that I had with the uh, with the regional uh, NRCS agent, my experience was good. Um, like like you know they're human too. Yes, they're, they're government employees, and, sure. and 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 you know we can all have our thoughts about that. But the reality is he was just a guy that's cares about what he does, uh, has his own beef with, with the programs and thinks a lot of facets of them are dumb, but he's doing the best he can in the situation that he's in. And accordingly, his role is to help me do the best I can in the situation that I'm in. So he did a great job of coaching me, walking me through the paperwork and all the processes that were necessary to get this thing up and, and constructed. So I don't know exactly what the requirements are, but uh, I will say that there, depending on where you are and, and the particular person that you're working with, there may be a bit of leniency because uh, from what I can see, people that are involved with the NRCS or the redheaded stepchild of the USDA, they want to see these programs work. They sure. want to see people taking advantage of them, so they want to work with you to make that happen. Yeah, and you know, I'm not here to beat up on government today. This is taking advantage of a government program, but as government usually is, they give you an answer that give you an answer. Like I'm on their website now, <laughs> and it says, "Who can apply? Eligible applicants include individuals, legal entities, Indian tribes, or joint operations engaged in agricultural production." That's pretty clear. In addition, organic producers. Oh, so okay, you got to read it by the letter. Organic producers, producers who grow agricultural commodities on eligible land and have natural resource concerns, which may be addressed by seasonal high tunnels, may participate and equip. Okay, so it sounds like you have to be an individual legal entity, Indian tribe, or joint operation engaged in agricultural production. So unless you're a organic producer growing agricultural commodities. So I, I don't know, but it sounds encouraging uh anyway. Yeah, and, and the way that I see that is that's that's pretty vague, and yeah. and I mean you, you can reread that, and 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 I would I would encourage anybody out there that's listening that's interested to to read this because in and amongst all of that jargon, what I read is basically this: eligible applicants include. Individual. Indi individuals engaged in agricultural production, and that is what I am, and that is what we are. Yeah, that's not to say because I don't have ag zone land. I can't go ag zone land on three acres in Tarrant County. I have to be five, but I am certainly an individual engaged in agricultural production. Right now, with that said, <laughs> um, that, that does bring up a good point because 
the vendor that I worked with is a local vendor to the Northeast Ohio area okay. and has built a number of high tunnels in the Cleveland metropolitan area, one on Case Western Reserve University, which is basically downtown Cleveland, and another one at the Ohio City Farm, which is in Ohio City, again, right downtown Cleveland. Those areas are most likely not zoned agricultural, Yep. but there are, again, it, it, it the high tunnels are there and they've been built. So I think that's probably not as big of an issue as um, a lot of people uh, might think it may be. That's great. That's actually really great. So this stuff's actually handled at the individual state level, right? So how do people find out who'd like their contact is for this? Well, pretty simple. Uh, you can contact your local NRCS ex extension agent and, They will set up a time to meet with you. Um, when I, I, I'm actually in the process of going in again to work on another program, and, and if there's time, maybe we can hit on that later. But when I go in this time, I'm I'm gonna come <laughs> I'm gonna come armed with a box of donuts and 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 make sure that these guys are happy because <laughs> hey, the reality is, you know, my day job is at a tree farm, and when my customers bring me donuts. I'm real happy, and I yeah. like that a lot because I like donuts. And I, I'm more inclined to work with people who make me happy. It's that's it's kind of it's pretty simple. So you know, if you go down there, make a good first impression. Bring a box of donuts. You know, like um, and, and just reach out to your agent. And and I think that if you do something like that, and also you know, make them feel like you you, you really don't have to put on a show, but Let them know that you're really interested in the program and 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 that you want to work with them and they'll want to work with you. Just just be good people and, and you'll find that most likely they will do the same in return. Okay. And I mean, is that where you go for as much information as you can find on this? Is there places where people can find more information on, you know, exactly how to apply or whatever? Yeah, there's 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 a lot of There's a lot of information that you can learn on the on the NRCS website, um, which is nrcs.usda.gov, and there's there's a lot of links that uh, that you know maybe uh, if possible you could even include in show notes or something. But there is sure. that's there's an abundance of information online and. And honestly, there's sometimes too much. And because of the vague nature of the information, like we just read, as far as eligible applicants, it becomes a lot easier to deal with the agent directly because just like any other government program or any other corporate program or any, any other, any kind of program, there, there is a hierarchy in place and those guys need to answer to other people who need to answer to other people. And even though this is a federal program, there are, from what I can tell, little nuances from state to state and ultimately from county to county. Sure. So it's a lot easier it, it, because that's what I did. It was a lot easier for me to just go direct to the source and talk with them instead of getting bogged down with all the information online which is very easy to do because there's a lot of it. Gotcha.
So let's talk a little bit about what's involved in building one of these tunnels. It's probably a little bit more advanced than the last little greenhouse kit I put together. And it's just like a good time of year to actually be doing that, that construction. It is. Um, it's getting a little, well, it depends. Okay. <laughs> it, it depends on, on that's a spiritual answer. I'm the only one alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's, it's the truth and, and it's a good answer. So, uh, there's, there's so many variables that go into the construction of one of these high tunnels. And a lot of it is where you live because you are driving posts into the ground, uh, to, Act as the, the the big air quotes. Act as the foundation, okay. and if the ground is frozen, uh, you're not you're going to have a pretty hard time driving posts into the ground. But but to, to kind of give a breakdown of of how things worked out with regard to the application process, to the construction process, to basically a finished high tunnel, which is what I have now. It was about this time last year that I. Com- completed the application process, uh, and there was, I was still going through the application process, got most of it wrapped up in December of 2014. Um, continued to, it, it was slow to, to get off the ground. Um, it was, I, I guess every year they make changes, little minor changes to the seasonal high tunnel program, to all the various programs that are a part of the NRCS. So as, as the, the bureaucracy is making those changes in the early part of the year, they, they make the changes in the program, review all the applicants, and then by about June or July, you receive notice of whether you were accepted or not. And just for reference, there, there are things that you can do to encourage or, or, or uh, make yourself a, a more likely applicant. Things like utilizing cover crops, um, things that you, that most people that are involved in the regenerative agriculture sphere would normally be doing anyways because they're beneficial for the environment in which we grow in. That's like, like cover crops, for example. That's something that sometimes people don't do in the conventional world. So, you know, what we see as normal, most people don't. But if you do that, that gives you bonus points on your application and makes you a better candidate. So, really, um, yeah. So, so by July, I found out I was I was uh, accepted. My application was accepted. I was chopping at the bit to get things built because like that's how I'm wired. I'm really I'm really stoked on the the change that I'm making in my life and and I want to expedite those processes to make it happen faster. So while I didn't need to do that, once you get accepted, you can either at that point, once you're accepted, nothing has to happen. You can go through all of these processes without any commitment to anything. Okay. And that's also important to know too. There is nothing to lose by going through the application process, talking with the NRCS folks, um, applying, and then getting accepted, nothing binds you to anything until you sign a contract. So okay. you can go through all of this and learn with no obligation, and that's critical to understand. 
So this doesn't trap you into anything. Um, but because I wanted to go through with the program, I, I think it was upon acceptance, you have either 12 or 24 months to, uh, to get it built upon signing of the contract. But I had already had my ducks in a row, got it, um, got the, got accepted, signed off on the contracts and started working with the vendors to schedule the, uh, uh, to schedule the delivery of, of the various estimates that I got. And at that point that happened, that was July first weekend of construction occurred in September. Uh, second weekend of construction occurred in October. And by that point it was built. There's many, many different ways to, to go about the construction. But before I start rambling on about that, did you have any questions? Cause I, I could just keep motoring along. Yeah, I, I was going to say, we might want to give people some context here in, you know, how big of a tunnel did you put in? Mm-hmm. What was the total cost and what did the government pay? Because that's kind of important information. Right. So again, there's, there's a lot of variables with the different high tunnels that you can build. There's, you, you can have a high tunnel built that's, uh, uh, 15 feet wide by, yeah, 10 feet wide by 20 feet, 30 feet long. Uh, you know, a little 300 square foot high tunnel. And that's, that's great. Um, and a lot of those things you can do on the cheap without any, uh, without any programs. And, and sometimes I, I kind of kick myself for not doing that, but, Hey, go big or go home was kind of my, yeah. <laughs> my thinking. So, um, the, the, the bottom line is the, the way that at this point in the year 2015, the way that the agreement is structured is you, the applicant is reimbursed a certain dollar amount per square foot okay. up to 2,160 square feet. And, for those that aren't aren't in the know, that is a 30 foot wide by 72 foot long high tunnel. That's 2,160 square feet, and that's pretty much the standard okay. um, in these programs. And as far as uh, as far as the different ways that you can construct it, there's, I mean, the high tunnel is a product. There's a lot of vendors out there pushing their own version of the high tunnel. Hey, my galvanized tubing is the best. It's stronger than that guy's. Hey, uh, you know, my kit is better than that guy's. And that, and, 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 it, you know, that decision is ultimately yours. You, you go with who you think is best. Uh, I wanted to stick local because part of what we're doing here on, on our farm, uh, and, or at, the, at least with the landowners here, we're, we're, you know, we're very big into the local food movement. We are trying to get involved with that. And this particular vendor is also involved in that. And it just seemed to make good business sense to do that and further develop our network with, in conjunction with theirs. And, uh, but there's also less expensive options if money is really tight. You can get kits off of farm tech. Yep. And, Depending on where you are, um, if you qualify for the beginning farmer, like I did, 
that dollar amount increases um, substantially. So the long and short of it is you can go through this this process with the NRCS high tunnel. Uh, if you okay, something else that's important to point out. It's, it is not a grant. You do not get the money and then go buy the stuff. Okay. You have to front the money. Sure, I understand. So a lot of people don't. So that, that, you know, unless you work this out and, and plan in advance, you can go through all this stuff and uh, go through all these processes and then realize, oh man, I got to cough up five grand. Oof. Uh, dang. <laughs> so, so you, you kind of have to have your ducks in a row. Now there is something that isn't discussed that much within the program and that's the advanced payment. If you, and that's what I did. Um, I could have swung it, but without, I didn't want to dip into my savings. So I moved forward with the advanced payment, which basically allowed me to, you know, sign another little contract saying, all right, we're going to give you 50% of the money up front before you do anything. Yeah. But if you do that, you have to have this thing built within 90 days. Okay. Otherwise, you know, you're, <laughs> you're screwed. Yeah. So that worked out for me, but, um, and, and, and accordingly I, I did dip a little bit into my savings and I figured that if I'm going to do this, because I'm, I'm going through a process of developing the parcel of land that I'm leasing to be modeled very similarly to Jean-Martin Fortier's, uh, outlined garden and do a very intensive cropping system on about 1.5 acres, which is what I'm working with in that area. And this will be the hub of operations for that surrounding 1.5 acres. So I decided... Okay, let, me, let me hold you there a second, though, because yeah, I want to give absolutely. people some frame of reference. So mm -hmm. I, I understand that... I'm sitting on Farm Tech right now. There's 20 different models. Every single one of them costs a different price for the same size footprint. Right. But to give people an idea of what's possible, what was the cost of yours and what did the government cover? Okay. Bottom line, I, I built a 30 by 96. Okay. 2,880 square feet. Awesome. I upgraded the hell out of it with, you know, insulated doors, man doors, sliding doors, six foot sidewalls, improved ventilation systems. The high tunnel is the bomb. It is Cadillac. Okay. And when all was said and done, the high tunnel cost $15,000. Okay. And my portion of what was reimbursed from the government to me was $9,000 approximately. Wow. So I got a almost 3,000 square foot high tunnel that I can, I can drive a tractor in, pull a truck and trailer in, and basically really capitalize on the space inside of it. For six grand out the door. That's that's awesome, and that's yeah. kind of what I wanted to get people get across to people is what's possible because to to put that in perspective, I'm looking at a uh, a 30 by 12 by 96 economy model, no upgrades, just basically the tunnel and the tarp uh, yeah. for 6,200 bucks. So. You got the project done, all of the upgrades done for about the same price as somebody could buy the cheapest low end thing off of farm tech as a kit. And if you, if you go that route and you're in, you know, and you've got the skill set where you can build the thing, 
you know, maybe you work for a construction sub company or you've got some buddies that do and have access to good quality tools and you can assemble a work crew and get it done and your time isn't, isn't that, uh, you, you're not in a time crunch and you have the time to build it over the course of a couple weekends or over a couple months, you can actually make money on it. You, wow. That money, any remainder, you know, if you get nine grand, and the and the the money that you put into it is seven grand. That's two thousand bucks in your pocket. Okay, no so, problem. So let's talk about one other thing with this thing. Um, you, you talked about some stipulations, like you know, to get the advanced money, you have to have it built in ninety days. I imagine <laughs> when this thing's done, there's probably an inspection. Does it exist? Was it done? Is it really a high tunnel? Is you know, or did a guy prop up some some. Uh, some, some, what do you call it? Some of like a painting tarp with uh, a few PTC. <laughs> but are there any other, you're making a deal with the government. So are there any other things that are like ongoing, uh, requirements, like what you can or can't grow or how much operations have to be done in it or what have you? Not really. Not, I mean, I'm sure that if somebody wanted to get in there and, get into the fine print with a magnifying glass, they could correct me and say, no, Rob, you're wrong. It reads this and fine, do that. But the way that I see it is you build the high tunnel, you build it according to the specifications that are provided to you during the application process. That's part A, part B. And, and, and for a lot of people, that's where it ends. You build it to spec and you're done. For me, because I signed on to do some cover crops and some other things like that, um, once the structure was built, I notified the agent, hey, Derek, the structure is built. I think I'm good to go. Okay, Rob, well, I'm going to come by and check it out. Is that okay that I come on your property? Yeah. Okay. He came out, checked it out, said it's good to go. You just need to get your cover crop in. They, they do give you some guidelines on the cover crops. There's some flexibility there, but... Um, most of the cover crops they recommend and suggest are pretty standard. If you want to do something crazy, you know, they, they may raise an eyebrow. But, um, you know, I, I, I will be doing a cover crop of uh, daikon radishes. And I, I'll actually be cover cropping repeatedly because the soil that I have is is terrible. It's, it's conventionally farmed. It's been gra- conventionally farmed grain for decades. So I've got very little to work with, but um, I'll be cover cropping it repeatedly. And, and as soon as that first cover crop's in the ground and it's showing green, I'll call them back out there and say, hey, everything's good to go. And at that point, as far as I can tell, he'll say, yeah, you're right. It is good to go. Way to go, Rob. Maybe give me a pat on the back and say, if there's anything else we can do to help, just let us know. And I'll say, great. See you later. <laughs> And po- probably never again after that because they have other things to be doing with themselves. So, yeah. so can we talk a little bit about what are your plans for this, this thing long term? You mentioned it as a hub, but what do you see as your main, you know, cropping usage and things like that out of it? Right. Bef- 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 I'm more than happy to talk about that. I do want to mention one thing though, that if somebody is looking into this, um, I, with the particular vendor that I worked with, for, for an additional, I want to say, it, it, here in Northeast Ohio, their rate was about you know, $1,500, $1,600. Bucks. They did what 
there were three options that, that you could just buy the kit from them. You could do what was called a managed install, or you could pay a little extra and just say, here you go. This is where I want it. Here's your check. Build it and call me when it's done. And uh, I went with the managed install, and basically they, they sent over – it was kind of cool. One of the owners of the company, this uh, – uh, this kid can't even be 30 years old. He founded the company with another guy. He came over with another project foreman, and I assembled the work crew with the local uh, regenerative agriculture, permaculture community, and we came together and we built this thing over the course of four days. So if there is an option with a vendor that offers a managed install, I would highly recommend doing that because those guys will get you working in a highly efficient way and get that thing up lickety-split. It's awesome. So keep that in mind if you're doing something like that. Can we talk about, okay, what does that actually mean? Does that mean they do everything or they are doing part of it or what? These guys, and, and, and little shout-out to Tunnel Vision Hoops, these guys busted their ass. Uh, Todd and Frank were there. They did more work than I expected them to do. I expected them to kind of be on site and direct us, hey, okay, get this piece, put it there, do this, do that. They they really did a lot of work themselves and then, you know, broke us out. There were about six or seven of us each day that, that, that we were working, and they broke us out into little teams just like you would on a construction project or landscape installation or something like that. Everybody had their role and they, they just, they had us working like a well-oiled machine. It was fantastic. Okay. That makes sense. So it, it was, I mean, and there's the other option to just have them do a full on install and you can just sit back in your chair, have a beer, eat some popcorn and watch them work. But I I wanted to learn. So I got in there and, and with everybody and, and built it with them, but that's not what I do. So that's that's why I hired them and it and it worked out great. I you don't have to convince me of that. I've always been a big fan of things that I have never done before. If they involve something that's going to be critical to my success, bring professionals in. If Precisely. They, if they can kill me, bring professionals in. If if I can hire somebody for less money than it's going to cost me to not be working, bring professionals in. I mean that's that's just common sense, really. Though many people don't see it that way. No, but but. But getting back to your original question of what is the goal for this property, I at this point I'm currently leasing a, about one and three quarter acres. I haven't I haven't gotten out my uh, my equipment to dial in the land base that I'm using, but that's about what I got according to Google Maps, and that okay. works for me. Um, there is an adjacent portion that was. Uh, basically, we we cut hay on it last year. A friend of mine uh, came over and hayed that that field, which is about two acres. So, what I'm going to propose to the landowners is extending the lease to that four acres, and that will basically be uh, the little the little farm that we're we're doing, and possibly another small portion on another part of the property. But but basically. It's it's not a tremendous area to work with, but it's enough, and uh, I wish I had more, but this is what I got. So over the past few years of really diving into the abundance of information that's out there, 
in large part through your show, in large part through Diego's show, and a number of other podcasts out there, and ultimately just making friends in these networks. Um, I have put together a big farm plan, a comprehensive land development plan to outline what it is that I'm doing, the time frame that I want to do it in, and when reviewing it, use that as a mechanism to track progress. And, and the long and short of it is a part of that land, about half of it's going to be devoted to Jean Martin style uh, market gardening. The other half will be lined out in a silvo pasture model, maybe planted uh, along the lines of Stefan Subkowiak's permaculture orchard and, you know, utilizing a lot of Mark Shepard-esque stuff, Grant Schultz-esque stuff. Uh, and basically just capitalize, take full advantage of that two acre parcel and start planting trees. We're, we'll be starting that next spring. Chestnut seeds are stratifying in the fridge and there's a whole lot of stuff going on. But, but in this small space, there's a lot of people that are in urban areas, you know, suburbs that are like, wow, four acres, that's huge. Uh, and it is comparatively speaking, it's all relative, but sure. You know, I'm kind of in a more rural area and four acres isn't a lot. So what I want to do is really go fully intensive on the space that I have, utilizing it in the best way possible. And at this point, though, that's kind of the idea that I have right now, uh, that this is different than what I was thinking a year ago. And that's where the whole farm plan has been an integral part of the growth and development of this parcel on this property because it's helped me reflect and look back on what I was thinking, what I've learned, where I'm at now and where I want to go. So it's, that, that's been a big, a big part of it. I mean, and I think that would be something that would be really important for a lot of people to do. The thing they want to get into this business is to not just go willy nilly, especially if they want to do farming as a, a true vocation. Here on my little farm, we're kind of slowly easing into it, but it's 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 different in that we have another business. It's different in that we own the land, you know, and and that that makes like kind of just finding little pieces and seeing where they fit in and work out one thing. But if you actually want to take this as a serious business, then planning it end to end, I think, would be very important. Absolutely, and while I don't have. Uh, another business, I, I do have a job and that's where sure. a lot of us are. And we have, a lot of us have dreams, but we also have obligations, life on life's terms. And we can't just pick up and be a farmer. I mean, it sounds romantic and everybody, you know, not everybody, but a lot of us want to get farming and reconnect with the earth and commune with nature, whatever, you know, like whatever your reasons and rationale is for, for pursuing this, um, you know, that's great, but I'm not in a position to just drop everything and go be a farmer. I, I, you know, I want to be very calculated and kind of precise to the best of my ability because <laughs> anybody who knows me knows I'm really not, not that precise, but I'm trying very hard to be that way and implement a lot of my career skills in terms of project management and basically start treating my life like a project and outlining tasks and goals and reviews and uh, strategic planning and, you know, things like that. Because the, the reality is I have a, I have a damn good job now. I'm proud 
to work for the company I work for. I take a lot of pride in what I do. The people that I work with, I love it. To to try and 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 move forward and leave that behind is kind of frightening because there's a lot of people who spent their life trying to get the quality of job that I have, and I'm I'm incredibly grateful for that. But sure. it's risky to 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 think beyond that. It's not risky to think beyond that, but it's risky to start acting in a manner that want that 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 kind of with the understanding that you're you're probably gonna leave that behind and doing something like this and and building a big high tunnel and then continuing to make more plans is kind of holding your feet to the fire like hey now we're you know now we're committed you've you've, you've dropped a pretty penny and you, you either better do this or <laughs> some hard lessons learned in the pocketbooks but that that plan is critical and uh you know like you I'm I'm also taking a very slow approach it's been uh, several years since I decided that this is what I wanted to do. And I think that that slow approach has really been to my benefit. Would I like things to go faster? Sure. Absolutely. But this is, this has allowed me to, you know, not be an idiot like I was in my twenties and, 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 and well, hell in my thirties too, for that matter. So, but it's, it's really encouraged me to go about it slower go about it in an appropriate way and ultimately implement a lot of the permaculture principles like observation, interaction, and, and, and kind of utilizing those techniques and, and ideas in the plan because ultimately that's that's a recipe for success and that's something that I want to do. I want to succeed. Okay, can, and can we talk a little bit more about like your long-term plans? If everything goes to plan – where oh. do you see yourself in, in three years with this, let's say? In three years, ideally what I'd like to be doing is I work sales at a tree farm right now. What I'd like to be doing is spend my Tuesdays and my Thursdays out with restaurants hustling the product that I'm growing to chefs. Um, to being able to devote my work days to the farm instead of, you know, working out in the dark under the headlights of my car with a headlamp, putting comfrey roots in the ground. Um, and, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get what you need to get done. But there, there also comes a point where if you continue working at that pace for a long time, you burn out. So, you know, three years from now, I'd like to be able to say, I am a farmer. This is what I do. You know, these are my parents and this is our farm. And someday this will be somebody else's farm. And that's it. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's really kind of simple, but it, I mean, we we're, we're working with the market, uh, farmer's market. A few years from now, I'd like to diversify and have some more markets, uh, under our belt, but ultimately start working on a larger scale with restaurants. And Curtis Stone has been, uh, a guy that I've been following, listening to and learning from. And uh, he's he's really got an approach that appeals to me, and I'd, I'd kind of like to follow suit uh, in the in the beginning stages of that, as well as moving forward with some things that he is not involved with uh, in terms of livestock. And I'm making some friends around here that are getting involved in uh, heritage, poultry, pork, and beef production. And while we may not have the ideal land base for Cattle production, it's certainly good for poultry, pigs, 
and uh, and some other things, and and I'm I'm really excited about that and look forward to moving on that. But even though I can't raise pigs right now, uh, you know, there's somebody else that can, and I've been talking with her. She's already got some breeding going on with mule foot pigs and uh, some large blacks, I think, and she. You know, I helped her castrate some pigs a couple weeks ago. I'm going to help her uh, call some roosters maybe this weekend. And I'm not in a position to do animals right now. I don't live on the land yet, but I'm networking with people who are. And one of the things that she struggles with is marketing, whereas that's something that I'm no expert, but I, I am working pretty hard to develop a network knowing that three years down the road, I will be committed to farming full time and I'd like to have, uh, I'd like to have a customer base as established as I can in the spare time so that once I'm there and ready to get after it, I've already got a little bit of a market there. But in the meantime, I can work with her at least contributing financially and help her do two person tasks with livestock so I can learn more. Yeah, the experience is, is priceless because yeah. a lot of people think they're going to, well, I'm going to go run pigs. Well, if you've never done it before, you're in for a surprise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, it's, it's a lot. Animals, animals are a big commitment. And while I want to do that, I'm not ready to now, but I'm working with people that are. And it's a great way to gain experience. And I think it, in that way, it's going to be like a symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationship. She does a lot of the legwork. I can help push a lot of the product and help her make some sales. So that's that's good business. That's people helping people. Absolutely. That's what we need to do. Absolutely. So you mentioned something earlier about some additional program that you're going to go after next or, or, or something like that? Yes. Yes. I I met with the agent again and an engineer from the – Boy, let me see if I can get this acronym right. The soil and county water, the soil, the soil and county water district. I I don't know. The engineer for the the county, one of the county guys. Anyways, um, they came out and and visited the property, and, and I'm in the process of applying for fencing. And while the program uh, a lot of the fencing ideas and a lot of the alternative programs came from attending a workshop at Darby Simpson's place uh, several months ago. And he has really capitalized on various NRCS programs as well and has some great articles that are available to read to learn more and probably do a much better job of explaining the programs in the way that I am because he's been doing it for a while and he's a, he's a, he's a great guy very smart Darby Simpson check him out but I realized that in addition to the high tunnel there are programs in place that help you establish livestock fencing water systems uh, for your livestock forest management plans Uh, there are also cost share programs available for establishment of pollinator areas um uh, there, there's there's a number I think if I remember correctly they they there's about 18 different programs that are in place through the NRCS and it's a very diverse set of 
Well, so it's a very diverse set of programs that that can be applied in your farm operations in in many different ways. And for a lot of people like like myself and a lot of people out there listening, this is something that we want to do. But the reality is it does involve a lot. Well, it it involves some money up front. Mm -hmm. A a lot is, you know, whatever you want that number is. But but uh it, it does involve, you know, foot, you know, fronting some cash, and and these programs make that a little bit more manageable. And um, I I struggled with that for a long time because it is a government program, and damn it, I wasn't going to take any handouts. I'm going to be my own man. But uh, I, I I got over that. And I well, I'll tell you how I got over it. how I'm over it, right? So. I, I've, I've given those people about $60,000 a year for the last 10 years. So uh, I'm a long way from where I'm going to feel bad about taking some of my money back. That, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's a fundamental reality that a handout is people who don't do anything uh, are beneficiaries of the income earned by others. I think things like these programs are things like, so you mentioned establishing pollinator habitat. Well, who the heck doesn't want to do that that's in a regenerative agriculture world? So the the difference there to me is when the government does a program for like corn subsidies or or whatever, when you take that money, then you are damn well going to farm corn on that land for like seven years. Right? So that's... That's being roped into something that is very unilateral and takes up huge swaths of land. Where if I can get a grant, I probably couldn't do the pollinator thing. I I don't know. I'd have to read the confusing website. But probably it's probably for land that's a little bit bigger than mine. But if I had 100 acres or 10 or 20, and they said, well, if you set aside a half acre and and make this into just pollinator habitat, uh, you can have a grant to do that. Oh, Okay. I mean, that's not like I'm selling my soul. I'm doing something that I'd want to do anyway, and I can get it done now instead of someday. Yeah, that's 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 just it. The reality is, whether whether I like it or not, these programs have existed for years. They exist now, and they exist and will exist for many years into the future, regardless of how hard I shake my fist in the air. This is the reality that we live in. And I, I can, you know, I can, I can cross my arms and stomp my feet and say, no, no, no. And, but for what? It, 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 nothing's going to change. I can, I can capitalize on what's available to me right now. And, 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 and really, you know, whether, whether this actually happens or not, I like to think that some of the dialogue that takes place with some of these NRCS guys, and I, you know, I throw out little hints. Of you know maybe some 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 anarchist principles or some 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 ooh, permaculture words uh, and, and, and dot some of, I wouldn't ever say that word with an NRCS guy just keep that out of the keep that out of the mix you know but but the reality is these guys are into contour farming they are into easement uh, buffers and, and and a lot of the same things that. You know, guys that, that we're interested in are doing like Mark Shepard and Grant Schultz. That, that those are all techniques and, and, and methods that are utilized by the NRCS through programs from the, NR, uh, from the USDA. So it, 
it's it, it makes good sense to do that because at the end of the day, when I take part in these programs, I'm the one that benefits. And that may sound selfish, but hey, man, I'm trying to start a business. Well, I'm trying to be a farmer. Yeah, and to really misunderstand things. So I'm looking uh, at, at an example of a watchdog on some of this stuff, and it says, to this day, to be treated as a farmer American doesn't necessarily require you to grow any crops, according to the U.S. government accountability office between 2007 and 2011. Uncle Sam paid some $3 million in subsidies to 2,300 farms where no crops of any sort were ever grown. Um, okay, so you got – nine grand to build a high tunnel where you're actually going to grow food. And, and these fools got $3 million dollars to not farm. So my point is with this stuff is all the money that's in the Department of Agriculture and set aside to do grants and subsidies and, and what have you, all that money's there, all that money's earmarked, somebody's going to spend it. It can yep. either be sent, spent responsibly or it can be spent irresponsibly. You absolutely cannot count on the government to spend it responsibly. So what you're actually doing is you're getting into a, a, a pool of money that's already been it's already stolen. Okay, let's well I'll admit it it's stolen. If I play with this money, I'm playing with stolen money. But I can't give it back. It's not going to happen. There's no it, it's it's an exit only hole, right? The money is now exited the, the taxpayer, and now it's it's gone into the abyss that is uh, earmarking. And it, it, it's going to be spent in that pool. So somebody can either be paid not to farm uh, or to grow corn and soy, which we have plenty of, or we can do creative things. But like you keep mentioning Mark, one of the most eye-opening things to me with Mark was we're, we're putting these swales in together, and he's like, I can show farmers how to do that and get paid to do it and get paid every year after they put those in for nine years to just leave them there. And I said, well, how do you do that? He goes, because that's not a swale. I said, looks like a swale to me. He goes, to you is a swale. To me it's a swale. But when you put it on a piece of paper, it's the USDA Code 600 compliant <laughs> agricultural <laughs> terrace. Oh, Bingo. oh, I see. So as long as I – and that's like you're hinting around like not using words like permaculture that they don't understand. But the key is learning the words they do understand so you fill out the form right. Oh, this guy uh -huh. did five miles of USDA, you know, Code 600 Agricultural Terrace under the Riparian Land Buffer Grant or whatever. And, and there was some project he was telling me about where this farmer basically covered the entire cost of install because it's running a dozer for a weekend. And then was paid $9,000, this is a big farm, $9,000 a year for eight years to maintain yeah. them. Which you don't do anything to maintain a swale. But if I could swale the whole United States, I would do it. And if I have to use what's available to do it, I will. I mean, it just makes sense to me. It it, it really does. And and I think what's what's also worth noting is, Like you said, most of these guys that take advantage of the subsidy programs are grain, corn, soy, wheat, uh, maybe down south, cotton, uh, sesame, or whatever. Sure. And that's the norm. But if you learn the lingo, you, you, you put some legwork into learning the programs, reading up on literature on, on the website, dealing with people that who have gone through the programs, guys like Darby, guys like Mark, hell, guys like me. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this with anybody because 
I'm really stoked on the programs and they're helping me do things faster. But you, you learn a little bit about the different facets of the programs and the, and the things that are underutilized, like the pollinators, like the riparian areas, things like that. And then you approach the NRCS guy and you get him talking about programs like that. Those aren't the norm. And based on my experience, if you talk about some of the stuff that isn't the everyday drag for these guys and, and you get them talking about some kind of interesting project, well, they're, they get, get somebody talking about something that excites them, something that they're interested in. Get somebody talking about themselves and they're never going to shut up. Case in point, me. Like, I could talk for days about all this crap because I like it and that's what I'm about. Same thing with those guys from the NRCS. Learn the lingo, learn their talk, talk the talk with them, and they'll be your best friends. They're there to help you. And and as, as, as silly as it sounds, I, I just keep thinking about, we're from the government, we're here to help. Um <laughs> maybe in this instance with these individuals that work for this agency, maybe that's the case with some of them. Yeah. Maybe. No, I've met, I've met, I, I can't bash every government employee because, well, first of all, for uh, a little over three years of my life, I was a government employee. We call them soldiers, right? So, oh, yeah. uh, and, and during that time, I didn't go out of my way to cause problems for people or to interfere with people because it's all about the individual. And, and in this case, I think we are. We're talking about a specific area of agriculture that is right up our alley. Mm-hmm. You know, no, that's that's a that's a great point. You're exactly right. So, hey, uh, can is there a place where people can learn more about you and, and kind of your adventure with all this? Sure, sure. The, the farm where I lease land is called York Meadow Farm. One of our winter projects this year is I'll be helping them develop a website. We've got the domain name secured, but there's nothing up there yet. That would be YorkMeadowFarm.com. Stay tuned for information on that. We are also uh, visible on Facebook. Facebook.com slash York Meadow Farm. I am doing some things on the side through my company, which is called Deliberate Living Systems, and that's DeliberateLivingSystems.com. And I wish that I could do more. I do some design and land planning work with some people, but on a very, very limited basis because I, I have a lot going on. So, Deliberate Living Systems is my company that will be growing and expanding over the course of the next few years. York Meadow Farm most certainly will be, and that's where I spend the bulk of my time because the reality is that's my biggest customer. And it's my family. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And that's kind of, I think, what a lot of people are in this for is to be with their family more often. So anyway, I wanted to thank you for being with us here today and for informing people about this. I think that there's probably a lot of people out there that can qualify for a grant like this. And like you said, they can either get uh, a Mac Daddy Cadillac 15K tunnel for, you know, a third of the price or possibly even get the whole thing paid for, depending on exactly how they go about it. And I think that's huge. And a final note on this whole concept of, you know, um, grants and things like that from, from NRCS. Uh, I think this is exactly, if we're go, if we're going to spend tax dollars on something, these are the types of things to do it on because unlike a corn subsidy, where every year that I harvest, 
I'm, I'm paid a portion of my, my, my harvest to keep prices artificially low, and it's an ongoing reoccurring thing. These things aren't stuff like that. These are like, okay, you have your tunnel now. What's well, up you to farm it? They're not going to give you a lettuce subsidy, right? They're not going to give you an arugula subsidy, uh, or, or whatever, or tomato subsidy, whatever you're growing in that tunnel. At that point, that product is now being put out into the free local market. So what this is a lot more of the um, get, teaching the man to fish versus giving the man a fish type of thing, if, if that Bingo. makes sense. I mean, that's really what I think we're talking about here. So really, thank you for being with us today and, and taking the time. I know you, I, I, I'll listen to your, your podcast with Diego, and I know you're, you're, you're pretty much killing yourself right now to do all of this. And that's inspiring, and, and, and that's part of why we're doing this at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I was willing to do that. Dorothy came to me and said, you know, Rob wants to do that at 4. I'm like, do whatever he wants. The guy's just busting his <laughs> rear end, man. So, you know, thank you for that, too, because it proves it can be done. A lot of people taking these steps, you know, are in their early 20s to early 30s, somewhere in there, young, lots of energy, and, and not much to lose. You're doing this at a point in your life where you could coast the rest of the way if you wanted to. And I think that's really inspiring, man. So, so thanks for being with us today. No, I, I, I appreciate it. And, and, uh, like I said, I'm happy to talk about this with, with anybody who's interested in learning more. I'd encourage you to reach out. Um, I'll, I'll do the best I can to respond in a, in an appropriate time frame. One, just one last thing that is important. Um, cost share programs, they're not grants. So if you get to talking with your agent, my my particular agent was a little hung up on the word grant, didn't like to use it, definitely preferred the terminology cost share programs. I'd encourage everybody to refer to them as such uh, because it's a little bit different than a grant, and I'm just too ignorant to know why, but um, that's that's what it is. But it's funny because they all call it a grant on the websites. Yeah. Again, I, again, little, little nuance and, and maybe my, maybe that's, maybe I'm wrong, you know, and, and whatever are, I am. I, I, but, but you always use the, the term that your client in business prefers. So in this yes. case, they're kind of your client, right? You're working with them. You're really their client, but since they're the government, they're your client, right? That's, <laughs> that's the way to look at this. And it, it, I, have, there, have you seen that honest political ad? The guy that's uh, Gil Fulbright. <laughs> it's like, I yes. want to keep my job. You can call me anything you want to. You can call me Fulbright Gil or uh, fill up my mouth with farts. Just like <laughs> yes. me, I, I don't want to go back into private life. And that, that's how I feel. I will use whatever words they want. Just like you know, Mark's like that's not a swell. I'm like the hell it isn't. Well, it's a it's a USDA code 600 terrorist. Well, why? Because then they give you money. Oh well, shit! When I fill out the form or talk to the guy, it's a it's a USDA code six hundred agricultural terrorist because that's their language. And I think that it might be interesting then to 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 then take approaches like this. We kind of know the high tunnel thing thanks to you and the information's online, but there's lots of things out there like fencing and pollinator habitat. Probably the best opening thing is let them tell you. So. I was interested in, in yes. seeing the, the, the pollinator uh, levels on my property and wondered if you have advice or programs to get that done. Or I am really interested in reducing some of the erosion programs problems that we have. What are some ways that that can be done? And are there any programs to help people like me do that? Or 
you know, I'm really having a problem with fencing and I, I can't really afford to fence the whole property. Can you help me figure out where the best place to put fencing in with the resources I have are? Because then they might be like, oh, well, actually, you can get some of your fencing paid for. And then whatever they say, you just keep using those words. That's that, you're, you're a salesperson, so you, this is probably natural for you. But for a lot of people, they don't think that way. They just go off. And if you get them talking, then they tell you what you repeat their words and then they think you're fascinating and smart. It, it, exactly. No, that's 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 the best approach that you can take is ask for their input because I mean it's it I, I suspect in that environment that they work in they face a lot of rest, restrictions and 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 don't have the opportunity to do a lot of what they want but if you if you go to them and say hey you know help me learn what what do you think I can do they're they're going to say oh well, you could do this you could do that you could do this and then take all that in you know, take diligent notes and see how that applies to your plan. And then all of a sudden you go back to them and say, this is what I want to do and, and, and it, how it best works out for me. You don't really need to say that. But but basically everything that you incorporate into your strategic plan for your property and your life stems from their ideas. And, and, and they're eating it up because, well, they're doing a great job because that's that's exactly what they're there to do. Well, and I mean, think about it that way. Like, what is their job? Their job is to help people in agricultural concerns do things that are more environmentally friendly and access government funds in order to do that. So when they actually help you put in your tunnel and get you your, your cost share grant or whatever the hell it's called, right, they actually have done a good job. And that's actually how they're judged in their performance. They're actually judged as doing a better job if they put in more high tunnels and spend more money to do so. Now, yeah. we can talk about all of the things that are wrong with that, or we can go out and exploit that and get good shit done. And that's that's what that's, I think we should do with this stuff. That's the bottom line. Get shit done and just make it happen. And that's this is one way to, to make it happen and, and, and lessen the burden on ourselves as we continue to do that. All right, Rob, well, I'm sure you got stuff to do. It's late in the day, so I got ducks to feed, quail to feed, and, and a wife to uh, say hi to because she just came in. I heard the door open out there. And uh, I want, with that, I want to say I appreciate you once again for being on the show with us today. Again, thank you for the opportunity, Jack. appreciate everything that you do and the inspiration that you are for me and everybody else out there. Thank you. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirica today along with Rob, Rob Kaiser helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Hit it up.
a holler of everything had. For my time, but I've been told you never come back from Copperhead Road. Copperhead rule. 